We're looking this afternoon at Article 31 of the Belgic Confession. Article 31, the ministers, elders, and deacons, which is actually a slightly misleading title, I think, for the article. But the article covers several somewhat loosely related matters, so it's a little bit difficult to uh, find a good title for the article, perhaps. Article 31, we believe that the ministers of God's word, the elders and the deacons, ought to be chosen to their respective offices by a lawful election by the church, with calling upon the name of the Lord, and in that order which the word of God teaches. Therefore, everyone must take heed not to intrude himself by improper means, but is bound to wait till it shall please God to call him, that he may have the testimony of his calling and be certain and assured that it is of the Lord. As for the ministers of God's word, they have equally the same power and authority wheresoever they are, as they are all ministers of Christ, the only universal bishop and the only head of the church. Moreover, in order that this holy ordinance of God may may not be violated or slighted, we say that everyone ought to esteem the ministers of God's word and the elders of the church very highly for their work's sake, and be at peace with them without murmuring, strife, or contention as much as possible. Of course, here in this 31st article, the confession is continuing with the subject of the government of the church, the subject that was begun in Article 30. And this was, of course, an important subject at the time of the Reformation. The Church of Rome had so corrupted the government of the church that the Presbyterian and Reformed uh, Reformers had to basically start over on this matter, had to go back to the scriptures and re-examine the scriptures with regard to this whole subject of the government of the church and restructure the whole government of the church according to scriptural principles. Uh, There are three matters that the article deals with. The first is how do elders um, and ministers and deacons uh, obtain their office? The second is, what is the authority, the relative authority, actually, of the ministers of the gospel? And I think we may extend that also to the elders and deacons. And the third subject is, what should be our relationship with the officers of the church? So we begin with the subject, how do the officers of the church obtain their offices. Even this was a problem in the Church of Rome, according to what our confession has to say here. The people of God at the time of the Reformation, prior to the Reformation, had no voice in who were to be their leaders in the local situation. The leaders were chosen by other uh, clergy and other parts of the world, in fact, often, and were simply imposed on the local congregations. So they had no voice at all in the matter. 
But I think there was another side to this question as well at the time of the Reformation, and that was that the um, Anabaptists, at least some of the Anabaptists, tended towards a despising of church government and towards everyone doing what was right in his own eyes. And so there tended to be, at least in some Anabaptist circles, disorder and confusion and a lack of proper government. And so the confession is really dealing, I think, with uh, both sides of this uh, question. It's dealing with the question, first of all, that the, uh, the point, first of all, that the members of the congregation, the ordinary uh, members of the Church of Christ should have a voice in choosing their leaders. But secondly, uh, with the idea that there must be a proper church government and that without that proper church government, the church descends into chaos and disorder. So what the confession says, first of all, is that the officers of the church are to be chosen by a lawful election. It's the very first statement it makes here in the article. They are to be chosen to their respective offices by a lawful election by the church. We talked about this last week, and so we don't need to go over it in detail again. I can simply remind you that we noticed last week that there are even Old Testament examples that show that the people of God in the Old Testament, at least at times, had a voice in the choice of those who would lead them. The uh, Israelites in the wilderness chose their judges, who were then approved and uh, installed in their offices by Moses. The uh, people of uh, Israel and Judah often had a voice, too, in the choice of their kings, for example. You can see this in various places throughout the Old Testament. This was not simply a matter of imposition, and even the office of king was not necessarily simply a matter of heredity, but among the sons of the um, line of David, the people often could make a choice with regard to those sons. And we saw in the New Testament a couple of examples as well. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles instructed the members of the church in Jerusalem to choose seven men to be their deacons. The apostle Paul, in ordaining elders, according to Acts chapter 14, seems to have done this after there had been a show of hands by the congregation. So the, the congregation does have a voice in this matter, and I think Reformed uh, church government has rightly made a place for the voice of the people of God in choosing their own officers. But what we want to emphasize, particularly this week, is that the confession indicates that this uh, election should be with calling upon the name of the Lord. That is, it should be accompanied with prayer. Their prayer should not be absent from this exercise. And of course, that shouldn't surprise us. The Apostle Paul says that we should pray without ceasing. In fact, that was in the chapter that we read, 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. And part of what, at least of what he means there, is be praying about all your endeavors. And don't expect that the Lord will 
I'll bless your endeavors unless you are committing them to him and unless you are seeking his blessing upon them. In something then as important as the election of the officers of the church, we need to be calling on the name of God. We need to be seeking his guidance and his help and his blessing on that endeavor. That's a very important matter for the well-being of the church. We should not neglect prayer in connection with it. And that means in the context of the election itself, but also in the, in the context of seeking the officers um, whom uh, God would have rule over us, seeking uh, uh, worthy candidates for these offices. But there's, uh, so prayer should go along with this. But there's another thing I think that we can point out here that the confession does not mention, but that is, does appear in the New Testament. And that is that not only did you find in the New Testament that there was a prayer with this ordination of officers, but there was also fasting. And I think we should take a note of that. That's not... Uh, an unimportant matter in this regard. In Acts chapter 13, for example, we read about the Holy Spirit uh, directing the church in Jerusalem or some leaders in the church in Jerusalem to single out Paul and Barnabas and send them on their first missionary journey. And you read in verses 2 and 3, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, this is uh, the men mentioned in verse 1, The Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So you had fasting, additional fasting. In fact, they had already been fasting about other matters. And now they're fasting about this endeavor of the first missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, when... uh, the Apostle Paul was ordaining elders in the churches, we read, so when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So that's two instances in which you read of this fasting in connection with the work of the office bearers and appointing the office bearers to do certain tasks. Um, it's something that we should think about. We, uh, the scriptures do not limit uh, their teaching about fasting to the Old Testament. We know that it existed in the Old Testament. Uh, the people of God, God commanded his people in uh, the law to fast at least once a year on the Day of Atonement, this tenth day of the seventh month. And this was called an afflicting of their souls. They were to to fast on that day, and this was part of their uh, mourning for their sins, the fasting. But when you go over to the New Testament, you find in the New Testament that the people of God fasted more with a view to doing specific work, not so much in connection with uh, mourning for sin as in connection with important endeavors, such as the election of office bearers. And this fasting then is not an insignificant exercise in the New Testament any more than it was in the Old Testament. 
Now, I think we do have to note about the Old Testament, or about the New Testament teaching also, that this fasting is to be accompanied with prayer. The, the two go together in the New Testament. There's prayer and fasting. We saw it in Acts 13. We saw it in Acts 14 in a different context altogether. We see it also in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Do not deprive one another, the apostle says, except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. So fasting and prayer go together in the New Testament. Um, I remember from many years ago a young lady who was talking to me about the, her desire to practice the spiritual exercise of fasting. And what she did was she uh, fasted on days that she had to work, and she did physical work. I think she was involved in house cleaning, in fact. And she found that her fasting um, interfered with her ability to do her work. But that's, that's not the point, right? The fasting doesn't stand by itself. Fasting and prayer go together in the New Testament. We are devoting ourselves to prayer, and in connection with that prayer, we also uh, practice fasting. It is a spiritual exercise associated with prayer. So that's a, another aspect that we might well consider in this connection, the election of officers. And then finally, we ought to notice that the scriptures also indicate to us that the lawful election and appointment of office bearers includes the laying on of hands. Of course, we know that the Apostle Paul laid hands on Timothy when he chose him to accompany him on his missionary journeys and to preach the gospel. We read about that in 1 Timothy 4, verse 14, where Paul exhorts Timothy, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. And in 1 Timothy 5 as well, 1 Timothy 5, verse 22, the apostle uh, says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. And in 2 Timothy 1, verse 6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. But if you turn back to Acts chapter 6, where the deacons were, the first deacons were elected, you find that the apostles laid hands on those deacons. And in 1 Timothy 4, verse 14, Paul says the elders laid hands on Timothy. They could not lay hands on Timothy to communicate office to him if they did not have the same laying on of hands as a gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is another thing I think that we should consider in this connection, that the laying on of hands is something that belongs really, according to scriptural teaching, to all the offices in the church. So those are the different parts, I think, that we may talk about in the lawful election. The people of God having a voice in the matter, electing their own office bearers, prayer and fasting, and the laying on of hands. But all this, then, uh, 
with a view, the confession says, in the second part of the paragraph here, to avoiding that disorder which comes from men intruding themselves on the office by improper means. Everyone must take heed not to intrude himself by improper means. And as we already indicated, this too was something of a problem at those, that time. Among the, in the Church of Rome, this intruding by proper means uh, happened often by way of simony, for example, that is the buying of office. Uh, men who wanted the office, not for uh, the purpose of serving Christ's flock, usually, but for the purpose of enriching themselves at the expense of the flock and at the uh, hands of the church and for uh, obtaining for themselves great authority, bought offices and sometimes paid huge sums in order to get into office. There was also a great deal of nepotism, that is the appointment of friends and family and and so on. Those who um, were not necessarily qualified for office, but who uh, were considered worthy of office because of the help and so on that they might give to the one who uh, appointed them. And on the other side of this coin, there are such things as men thrusting themselves into office or taking upon themselves, for example, the the preaching of the gospel and um, the rule of the church without waiting for the call of God. So this was another problem that had to be addressed. And the confession is saying there has to be this election and this a biblical order to the appointment of officers in order to avoid these kinds of uh, intrusion by improper means. And the proper means, then, the confession indicates, is the call of God. Everyone is bound to wait till it shall please God to call him. And when the confession talks about the calling here, it's not just talking about the internal aspect of the call. Just as with the effectual calling of the gospel, there is both an internal and an external aspect. The call of the gospel uh, to repent and believe is the external aspect, and the internal is the working of the Holy Spirit, which draws us to Christ in response to that call. So in connection with the office, offices, there is a call of God that has both an internal and an external aspect. And both should be necessary, should be considered necessary. When we speak of the internal aspect of the uh, calling, then we may uh, speak, I think, of the desire that some have for office. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, that if anyone desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. Or the, the persuasion that some have that the Holy Spirit is leading them in this direction, that cannot be neglected. But at the same time, of course, it has to be recognized by 
the person who's, who's feeling this kind of calling, that that's not all that's necessary. And we'll get to that in a moment. That's a part of the calling of God. The desire for office or the inclination for office. And there, there are some who, who don't feel this inclination or who are aware of circumstances in their own lives which would prevent them from serving or who know that they don't have the gifts needed, the um, aptitudes necessary for serving in office. And so they would exclude themselves from this and the church ought to respect that as well. So there's first of all this inner conviction or feeling that God is calling to the office. But it's more than that too, I think. Uh, As we've already indicated, men sometimes want office for wrong reasons. And we have to guard our own hearts against this kind of wrong reason. There's in some of us at least a thirst for power or a thirst for honor and respect. And we're not always... We don't always recognize that very quickly in ourselves. What we need to see then with regard to this internal call is that there is a willingness to serve. A willingness to serve is important here. Not the desire for honor or the thirst for power, but a willingness to serve. This is humble work, as our Lord Jesus Christ himself makes clear in John 13. He says to his apostles that they should wash the saints' feet, and that in doing this they should be imitating his example, who by his death was going to wash their whole persons with his blood. There's humility then that's necessary. And the Apostle uh, Peter understood this uh, internal calling, the need for this internal calling when the Lord in John 21 and in restoring him to office asked him that very important question. Do you love me? Not do you love honor, not do you love power, but do you love me? The office bearers must be those who love Christ and who show that love for Christ in their behavior. That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 outlines the qualifications for elders and makes very clear that the fundamental qualification for the office of elder is godliness. Godliness shows a love for Christ. And of course, along with that love for Christ will be love for his flock. So if a man desires the office of bishop, he should look for those things in himself as well. Do I love Christ and do I love his flock? Am I willing 
to humble myself for the sake of Christ's flock? Am I willing to wash the saints' feet? The third part of this internal calling, I think, is an awareness of some kind of aptitude for the work. My father used to say that God speaks mightily through the Greek department. And his point was simply this, that if a man cannot work with the Greek, he should not be in the office of minister. Perhaps that's not a rule without exception if the church has great need, for example, but nevertheless, working with the original languages is an important aptitude that a man should have for preaching the gospel. And the same applies in the other offices, and there are other gifts that are necessary. There has to be some kind of aptitude for the work. And if a man does not see this aptitude in himself, he should not put himself forward for office in the church. So those three things, I think, belong to this internal calling. The prompting of the Holy Spirit, we may say, uh, love for God and uh, a willingness to serve. And finally, the aptitude for the work the office requires. But that's only one side of it. And what the confession talks about, particularly in this article, is the other side of the calling. And that is what we may call the objective call. That is, the election of the church. The church calls to office. And this is as important as the internal call. If a man does not have the the, um, desire to serve in the office or does not recognize in himself the uh, qualifications or the ability to do the work of the office, then the church should not I think, pressure him to serve in the office. But on the other side, if a man does have that internal call, and all those things that we talked about with respect to the internal calling, and there's no call from God through the church, he shouldn't push himself into office. He shouldn't intrude. He shouldn't say, God has called me, and therefore I'm going to serve, whether the church wants me to or not. This is what the confession means when it said everyone is bound to wait till it please God to call him. And no man can be assured of being called of God to office until he has received that calling of the church. How shall they preach except they be sent, the Apostle Paul says. And when the preachers of the gospel and the elders and the deacons were appointed in the New Testament, that calling of God came through the church. You don't find them, men thrusting themselves into these offices in the church. You find the church calling them to these offices. And it's only when a man has received the call of God through his church that he can be certain and assured that his calling is of the Lord and have a testimony of his calling from God. So those are the two aspects then of 
the proper election, the calling by the church, as well as the internal conviction that the Holy Spirit is leading one to this work. Now we come then in the second place to the matter of the equality of the ministers of the gospel. And it's very clear from the paragraph here that the confession has in mind again the situation in the Church of Rome. Not only did the Church of Rome have all these different levels of offices and of authority in it, but it had one man who stood at the pinnacle of the church. And this man was called the universal bishop and the vicar of Christ and the head of the church. And the confession says the only universal bishop and the only head of the church is Christ. There's only one who has that ultimate authority. And under that one then, the confession says, all ministers of Christ, and I think we may extend this to elders and deacons as well, all ministers of Christ have the same level of authority. There are not all these levels of hierarchy as according to the teaching of Scripture. And so there's no elder who can exalt himself above other elders. No minister who can exalt himself above other ministers. No deacon who can exalt himself above other deacons. Their authority is equal everywhere that they are given work by our Lord Jesus Christ to do. And it's important uh, to recognize in this context then that when the Lord calls officers to the church, the standard that the scriptures establish is that there is a plurality of officers. Even within the local congregation, there is no single-handed rule, no one man who stands out as having authority above everyone else. This is an important warning for the church today. There are far too many churches, I think, where in reality, or at least in effect, there is one man who rules the church. He may have certain yes-men under him who rubber stamp what he does, but basically it comes down to what this one says goes. Every office bearer, every single office bearer, is answerable to the body of the office bearers within the local congregations. So there is a plurality of elders. No elder having greater authority than the other elders. Every elder in his particular position answerable not to an individual, but to the body of the elders. And the same for the deacons. The ministers as well. The ministers answerable to the elders for the exercise of their office. And this is a guard against tyranny, of course, in the church. 
Christ does not want his church to be governed by one, but there's great danger in one man having all the power in the church. Power corrupts, someone once said. And we need to be aware of that ourselves, and we need to guard against that corrupting influence of power. One of the guards that Christ has instituted is that he does not let any one man rule in his church. The third matter, then, that the confession deals with is our relationship with the officers. Now, we talked about this last week. And we talked about three things in this connection. We talked about our calling to obey them. We talked about our calling to pray for them. And we talked about our calling to be uh, faithful to the scriptures in our election of these men, in our choice of these men. But in this article, the confession addresses more the uh, subjective aspects of our relationship with them. How are we to feel towards them? And how are we to consider them is really the question that's being talked about here. Not so much as what are we to do, what are we to do with them, but how are we to think of them? And so the confession says, in order that this holy ordinance of God may not be violated or slighted, we say that everyone ought to esteem the ministers of God's word and the elders of the church very highly for their work's sake. And of course the confession is there quoting from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. And I want to turn there for a moment. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13. There are some useful things that we can note there. First of all, notice what the Apostle says about the work of the elders. He's talking about the elders here. In those two verses, he talks about their labor. Recognize those who labor among you. He talks about them being over you and are over you in the Lord. And about their admonishing you. So three things. He says, they labor among you, they are over you, and they admonish you. They labor among you according to the command of Christ. They are over you as representatives of Christ. They admonish you in the name of Christ. They are doing Christ's work among you, he says. Therefore, and he gives three responsibilities to the members of the congregation here. Recognize them, that is acknowledge them, acknowledge their authority, acknowledge their work, acknowledge their position as having been given them by Christ, acknowledge them as the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ to you, that's first. Esteem them very very highly, in the second place, for their work's sake, that is, hold them in honor, 
the sake of the work that they are doing. And finally, love them, esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. We are called to love all our neighbors according to the second table of the law. We are also commanded to love our office bearers for their work's sake among us. They are, people of God, administering to us the grace of God. And that's a very valuable work that they are doing. A work upon which you cannot put a price. Paul himself indicates that you cannot put a price on that work in 1 Corinthians 9 when he's talking about preachers of the gospel and their right to earn a living from the preaching of the gospel. And he says there, if they minister to you spiritual things, is it such a great thing if you have to give to them material things? That is, if you have to support them in this work. And that the, the idea is really, you can't pay them enough to recompense them fully for the great grace you receive from Christ through them. This is valuable work, work beyond measure, valuable for you. Therefore, esteem them and love them and recognize them. In 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 to 20, he also indicates some of the regard we should have for the elders of the church. And this, again, we can extend to the ministers and the deacons as well. He says there, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses, those who are sending rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. So that's first then, our, um, the way we think about the office, officers of the church. The second thing that the confession says is be at peace with them. Don't be always finding fault. Don't be always criticizing. Don't be always disagreeing. Don't be always objecting. Don't be always resisting. Be at peace with them. For the sake of the peace of Christ's flock, be at peace with them. Now, of course, there's a limit to this. Paul himself would have been the first to recognize the need for this peace to have limits. There are, there are times in the church when the office bearers must be opposed and must even be displaced from office if necessary because they are not doing Christ's work, because they are harming the church. And then there has to be strife and contention. But be at peace as much as possible, the Apostle says. I think we need ourselves to, as members of the church, to strike a balance here. There are some of us, and there are certain times perhaps in our own lives, when 
We are much too inclined towards peace and we let important matters go. We pay too great a price for peace. But there are other times and other persons who tend towards more contention. And then we have to be on guard that we do not contend unnecessarily. So esteem them and be at peace with them. By way of closing then, let's look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these words of our Lord Jesus Christ were spoken to his apostles after the mother of James and John came to Jesus asking that he appoint her two sons to be at his right hand and at his left in the kingdom. There was a a wrong ambition on the part of James and John to have the highest positions in the kingdom of heaven under the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read in verse 24, when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. In other words, they felt that these two brothers had gotten in ahead of them. They would have liked to have have, uh, been the first ones to ask this. And they they would have liked those positions for themselves rather than for James and John. They had the same ambition. They just didn't take advantage of the opportunity to ask as quickly as James and John had done. And so Jesus calls them and he says to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, there are two things really there, aren't there? Jesus is condemning this wrong ambition of James and John and the rest of the apostles as well. Don't don't want to lord it over the flock. Don't want to exercise authority over them. Don't be passionately attached to the idea of power. You must serve as I serve. I give my life a ransom for many. You must serve as well. But it's also, notice, a warning to the church. If you see this kind of thing in men, don't give them office. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Those who love Christ and who love his church and serve his church must be humble. And the church must look for that humility in them. May God bless you and his church with his word.